My city is on fire today. This is day four of the riots following in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. And everyone around me is saying, I'm angry too, but why destroy your own community like this? It doesn't make sense. Well, of course it doesn't make sense from the privileged perspective of a person for whom investment in community is high because it hasn't failed them over and over again on the most fundamental level. But for those who have been failed, and for whom investment in community is therefore low, and for whom the murder of George Floyd is a reminder of every time societies let them down, well, I have to think that maybe things look a little bit different. Maybe some of those people may be thinking, who cares if it burns? What has it ever done for me anyway? Now make no mistake, there is no excuse for looting or property damage and is absolutely not justified and the owners of that property are not the ones to blame and should not be made to suffer for it. But the emotion from which all this violence springs, the rage, the frustration, the despair, well that is justified. And I can share some personal experiences of why that might be. To paraphrase one local community member, this fire has been burning for a long time already. And that's what I want to talk about today. This is not exactly on topic for my podcast, but that doesn't matter. This takes precedence over everything else right now. First, I should give a report of what's happening right now. If you haven't seen the video footage of the incident that started all of this yet, you should just go watch that. But I'll attempt to summarize. It all started when George Floyd, an African-American man, was arrested by local police on suspicion of trying to use a fraudulent $20 bill at a store. And so far as we can tell, he wasn't resisting arrest or anything of that nature. The police claimed that he was, but none of the footage that has been recovered so far from people recording it on their cell phones, from multiple angles, from store security footage, and even from the cop's own shoulder cam so far has been released, that doesn't seem to be the case. He was not resisting arrest. But the officers involved put him in an unsanctioned hold where he was on the ground face down while an officer knelt with his knee on his neck. And Floyd repeatedly complained, I can't breathe, until he finally passed out. And bystanders pleaded for the officers to let up, but they did not, even after he'd passed out. And when paramedics arrived on the scene, they found no pulse and worked for an hour to revive him, but it was too late. George Floyd had been brutally murdered. And now I know some people are going to question me on saying that this was murder. If it turns out that the cause of death was due to something else, some underlying condition or substance or who cares, the fact still remains that he wouldn't have died had they not done what they did. The four officers involved were fired and later the one who had knelt on his neck was charged with murder and manslaughter. But by then it was far too late. Protesters took to the streets in peaceful demonstrations, but soon another contingent of people, in large part separate from the protesters, despite some possible overlap, well, they turned violent, and thus began something on a scale that our city has never seen before. Now, Rachel and I are fortunate to be out of the main line of fire. We live in a suburb where there has not been violence or looting, at least not yet. But we do have friends much closer in. For example, one who lives just off Lake Street, the heart of the riots, says she couldn't sleep all that first night for the sound of the shouting and glass breaking. And in the morning, she had to be escorted by police out of her neighborhood. There was a lineup of cars and none of them could move. There's a police officer at the front and only with that police escort were they allowed to leave the neighborhood. 
She didn't go home the next night, sleeping elsewhere for safety's sake. For blocks and blocks, not a single storefront remained with all its windows intact. A smoke cloud hangs over the city today, and numerous stores as well as a low-income housing project have been burned to the ground. Now, even out in the suburbs where we are, many stores are closed and boarded up as violence is now beginning to spill out into the greater metro area. Just this morning, we heard reports of looting in suburbs adjacent to us. A curfew of 8 p.m. has been imposed, and the National Guard has been called in. Now, for my international listeners, the National Guard, it's civilians who train on the weekends and are on call for emergencies like these. They've been tasked with protecting the Lake Street area around the 3rd Precinct Police Building that was destroyed, the state capitol, and a few other key areas. They're not authorized to make arrests, but they are armed, and they are authorized to act in self-defense. So that is a very brief summary of the state of the riots. You can get much fuller coverage with a simple Google search of the news, but what you can't get, or at least what I have yet to see, is this. How do we make sense of it all? Well, first of all, to be clear, some actually doing the looting are not from those neighborhoods coming from further out, even from out of state at this point. And it's not limited to one race either. Just today I heard the story of some white college kids from Wisconsin caught looting. So that already undercuts much of the hand-wringing where we say it doesn't make sense to destroy your own community. But insofar as there are locals damaging the very communities in which they live, and insofar as many riots across history have done exactly that, the question remains, how do we make sense of that? Now, I didn't grow up disadvantaged, so I can't speak directly to the experiences of those most hurt by this right now. All I can say is what I have personally witnessed, and that goes back to my time as a teacher in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. I spent some time as a substitute teacher going all around to different schools before I became a teacher at a particular school. And as a substitute teacher, I got to see a fairly decent cross-section of what's out there. And let me tell you, the disparity in schools and the quality and the funding for them in different neighborhoods, largely based on income, is frankly jaw-dropping. Now, mind you, this was 10 years ago, so there may have been some changes since, but at that time at least, it was enough to crush your soul. In one school, for example, in a low-income neighborhood, the desks were so old and splintered they must have been there since probably 1960, and they really should be considered a hazard to child safety. In another, the decibel levels in one math classroom were so high from students shouting and screaming that I personally, I wanted to have protective wear for my ears. I was concerned. I'm not kidding. And if I wanted that, imagine what it was like for the kids who were in that kind of classroom day in and day out. And the teacher of that classroom, I was subbing for her assistant, the teacher came up to me and said, what do you think of our class? And I just looked at her and I said, how can I help? And there was nothing else that I could say. Meanwhile, at the same time, when I walked into one school in a high-income suburb, I was quite literally embarrassed. It was so opulent. It was, it was just nothing like anything else that I had been seeing. And it was relieving, but it was also disgusting. 
I, I didn't know what to feel. Now, I could give more examples, but the point is that this disparity is its just ungodly. And schools are just, of course, one small facet of a very large and complex problem for which I don't have the answer. I have no idea what the right solution is to fix all of this. But what I can say is that we need to look at what this does to a person's soul. I mean, in yet one more school that I'll share with you today, an elementary in a low-income neighborhood, there was a little girl who couldn't have been more than 12 years old who came up to me and said, do you think life is worth it? Because I say F it. And of course, she didn't censor herself like I just did. Now, yes, she was trying to get me riled up. You razzed the substitute teacher. I get that. But that wasn't all. Do you think life is worth it? Because I say, F it. I mean, are those the words of someone who sounds like they're getting something out of their community? Are those the words of someone who would care if it all burned? And that's what I want to put my finger on today. Because that's what makes it make sense. As convoluted as the logic may be. People around me are saying it doesn't make sense. Why destroy your own community? Well, here it is. You see, it's not their community. It's never been their community. It's just the most immediate face of a system that has systematically disadvantaged them and plunged them into despair. Now, not everybody. Of course, there are those, even in the most desperate neighborhoods, who are heavily invested, who volunteer at the libraries, who organize sports and open mic nights, who beautify their neighborhoods with art and messages of hope. I've met those people, too. But I'm not talking about them right now. I'm talking about the ones that are burning things, over whom the rest of us here in this city and in the rest of this country and in the rest of the world right now are wringing our hands and saying, it doesn't make sense. Because the danger in saying it doesn't make sense is that we are then tempted to draw some much darker conclusions. Not out loud, we're much too PC for that these days, but privately in our hearts and perhaps even unconsciously. Doesn't it make you feel on some level like, geez, maybe they don't deserve our empathy? That's the real danger when we shake our heads and say, I don't get it. Now, like I said, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what new policies or laws will make it all better. But I can say this much. Whatever is going to help in the long run, it must begin with empathy. Because in the end, what exactly is it that doesn't make sense? If you ask me, it's failing to look past the immediate violence, failing to address the deeper underlying issues, failing to empathize with that rage and that despair. That is what doesn't make sense. That's all I've got for you today, folks. It's a report from Minneapolis where it's all going down. Rachel and I are healthy and safe here but that's not true for everybody. All right, I've got an update. This is day six now, Monday, June 1st. There's been a lot of confusion and misinformation about exactly what is going on. First, it has become clear that despite some out-of-state looters, the majority now appear to be, in fact, Minnesotans. Reports have not been clear about whether they are local to the area or from out of town, but most do appear to be Minnesotans. Second, it has become clear that there are many other groups causing unrest for reasons other than George Floyd's death. 
And this is receiving so much attention that it is actually threatening to distract from the core issue of Floyd's death, which is exactly what these groups want, attention for themselves. It's playing right into their hands, so this must stop. Finally, and most importantly for the main message of this episode, separate from what I've already said, there is an additional reason for looting that must be mentioned, and that reason is strategy adopted by some of the protesters. Yes, I know this blurs the lines between the mostly peaceful protesters on the one hand and the looters on the other, but this is a highly complex situation and lines are blurry. For those defending looting as a protest strategy, the argument is this. Tragedies of this nature have occurred in the past in our city, including Jamal Clark and Philando Castile, and nothing has happened. Justice was not served. In fact, the only time that there was a police conviction was when a white woman, Justine Ruschik, was shot by an officer who was African, Somali to be specific. And this has convinced many here that justice cannot be brought about by purely peaceful means. The looting is what gets attention and what forces the hand of justice. Now, I cannot argue with the validity of that logic. Whether it's justified, I will leave that up to you to decide. But that is another separate reason to destroy one's own community. It is collateral damage in an attempt to bring about justice, to force justice. And these two motives that I've talked about, alienated frustration on the one hand and protest strategy on the other, they're not incompatible. I'm sure that there are many who are full to the brim with both. And the point in the end is that we must not allow ourselves to dismiss all of this as somehow irrational or something. It's not. There are reasons behind it. There are ways that it does make sense. We cannot allow ourselves to make it only about the looting instead of being about justice. In the words of local resident Donella Thompson, four days of looting does not equal 400 years of slavery. The oppression is way deeper than this. Another update. It is now Monday, June 8th, and what happened yesterday takes my breath away. The Minneapolis City Council has pledged to, quote, begin the process of ending the police department. Now, what does that mean exactly? The announcement was short on specifics and admitted that the council doesn't know what a police-free future will look like, but added, quote, our community does, unquote. Nine out of 12 members of the council support the measure, giving them a supermajority that is veto-proof. So whatever it may look like, something will happen. Now, news sources are reporting this in wildly different ways, some saying that the police are being defunded, others disbanded, others dismantled, and still others abolished. And all of these things mean very different things, and our future could be any of them. At the less extreme end, we might see the removal of some or all of the funding for the police department. Los Angeles recently made a significant cut to its department funding, and we might see that here. Those funds would then most likely be redirected toward initiatives aimed at preventing crime, like public housing and mental health support, that kind of thing. At the more extreme end, we might see the complete dissolution of the police department. If that happens... It's not clear how the city will deal with violent crime, but we could see something modeled after Camden, New Jersey, which in 2012 disbanded its police department, then reformed them on an entirely new model, essentially hitting the reset button. And as a result, 
Hamden saw a dramatic drop in crime and police-involved fatalities. In just 10 years, it went from more than 60 excessive force complaints per year to just three and achieved a 40% drop in crime, its lowest rate in 50 years. Now, whether that can be translated into another area, we, we won't know until we try. But we could see something like that. Or it could be something entirely new. We don't know yet. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey has reiterated that he does not support abolishing the police entirely. Whether he will support a less radical vision of reform is still an open question. Regardless of what happens, the city council has committed to, quote, creating a new transformative model for cultivating safety in Minneapolis. We are getting rid of our police. This, this is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Protesters have been calling for this for years, but never in a million did anyone think that this was actually going to happen. I certainly did not. I can't express what I'm feeling right now. I'm awestruck, I'm hopeful, I'm terrified, I'm jubilant, all at the same time. This could be a very bumpy road in the future, and there are bound to be kinks to work out in the new system, whatever form it takes. But it is going to be a grand experiment. The future begins now. Now, what we absolutely must guard against at this point are the attempts to walk this back, which will be coming. Remember, after all, the Emancipation Declaration was followed by Jim Crow laws. Now, for my international listeners, what that means is at the end of our Civil War, slavery was abolished, but it was replaced by a system so dramatically unequal that it just basically shackled them once again. And not until the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s did African Americans really begin to become free. Now, we have an opportunity to fall back into that same old mold or to shatter it, starting something new. In the words of Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, we don't get another chance at this.